Good afternoon. I'm Lawrence Cornfield, Chief Building Inspector with the Department of Building Inspection, and we are here at our regular monthly brown bag lunch talk, where today we are going to talk about green buildings. And uh, I have with me Barry Hooper of the Department of the Environment, one of the people who works very closely with the Department of Building Inspection to uh, develop the implementation, both regulations and then the implementation of the regulations. Because um, in almost every case when there's a regulation, whether it's a building code regulation or some other piece of legislation, we have to consider, okay, now how are we going to implement this? And that's one of the biggest issues that we are we faced with is the city's new green building ordinance, which applies to mostly new buildings. And we're going to go through that today. But developing an implementation plan uh, and then trying to communicate it to you, architects, engineers, designers, the interest of public is one of our big challenges. So thank you all for coming. Um, we also want to talk about some of the issues related to green buildings that are current and coming. And I prepared a little handout, and we may go through that. And Barry has some comments. We were just talking about you know, analysis tools and other such topics. Um, and so I was hoping we could start with just sort of a general discussion of the overall green building issues. Um, most of San Francisco is built. You know, these are all older existing buildings. We have some small number of new buildings going up every year. It's not a very large number. Uh, and the building code is already quite focused on new buildings. We have the California building code is very strict about all of its requirements, including seismic safety and so on. And we have the California energy code, which is the strictest energy code in the country, which requires a very high level of uh, uh, energy savings in new buildings. And it's about to increase August 2009, ratchets up again, quite, quite a lot. Um, we have all sorts of building standards that apply to new buildings, as well as the San Francisco new green building ordinance. We don't have a whole lot of stuff that address our 95 or more, 98% of the city's existing building stock. And um, that's the next big challenge on the horizon here, I think. Don't you think, Barry? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, solutions to that are uh, viable from an economic standpoint and also practicality and meeting safety standards are all uh, very necessary to address the environmental performance of existing building stock. Right. And so Barry, by the way, is uh, running a new mayor's appointed task force on what should we do about existing commercial buildings and how do we increase uh, efficiency, I guess green buildings, not just energy efficiency, right? It's general sure. green building efficiency. Energy efficiency first, but also looking at water efficiency and overall resource efficiency with uh, both the uh, economic change and climate change being front and center as, as major considerations driving those recommendations. And in addition to the commercial stuff, there is a big push to look at residential existing building, green building features. And those include a wide range of things, some of which are already covered. So one of the things I thought I'd do as we start is read through a little list that I have here on the handouts you might have gotten and talk about it, of what are the other laws that apply to existing and new buildings and, and what's covered. So you don't think that it's just San Francisco's new green building ordinance that covers everything. So for example, and this may be a, a uh, tangential, but sound transmission assemblies. 
are, have been required in the building code since 1974. Is that a green building feature? Well, it has to do with the quality of life and your environment. And keep living in a quieter city, people say, is part of the overall concept of what makes our city a uh, more habitable, hospitable place. And I argue that is a sort of a green building feature as well. That's one of the standards. And this, since 1974, we have a lot of stuff that's been in the code for a really long time. Um, energy and water conservation. These are already required in the San Francisco Housing Code to be provided at the time of sale of a building. You have to do uh, a certain, very limited at the moment, energy and water conservation device upgrades. You have to put on faucet aerators. You have to make sure you're, um, you have a low flow toilet of a certain uh, volume. What is it now? What? 1.6 and, 1 .6 or 1 .6 and, and uh, gallons per flush. There is a really interesting approach to green building that I find in the California Historical Building Code, which is uh, part of the state building code group. And what the state historical building code says is that where you have a building that is a qualified historic building, which is to say it's more than 50 years old typically, and it has some historic value. It doesn't have to be a uh, historic resource as determined by the planning department. It doesn't have to be a landmark. It's just an older building that might have some historic value. You may use the California Historical Building Code and in lieu of the regular California Building Code in place of what they call the regular code. And that allows you to do things to preserve the integrity of the building. And I think a lot of people say an older building, saving an old building is the greenest thing you can do because of all the embodied energy and materials and so on. You don't have to tear it down and you know, get rid of that and import a whole bunch of new stuff. And so the historical building code gives us all sorts of opportunities. It's not really written as a green code, but really that's its, its uh, effect, I think. Don't you think, Barry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, of course, there are occasionally limitations where uh, a, a transportation or other uses could be substantially changed by a change of use. but. Uh, in general, yeah, the, right. retaining our existing buildings is critical. Okay, and that leads me to a point that's addressed in the building code, and that has to do with building durability. Durability is an issue that is becoming more and more a subject of conversation. It has not yet been incorporated into the national standards, either LEED, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, which we're going to talk about as sort of this nationwide premier green building program as a, non, as, a, uh, as a product, many products that we use, or uh, uh, green point rated. They don't talk specifically, they don't get too many points. I think you get a point here and there for building durability. But building durability is, is a topic that I think everybody's beginning to focus on. So if you build a building that lasts for 100 years, it's a greener building than a building that is designed without a lot of thought to its durability and materials only last for 20 years and you have to come in and put up new siding or put in new windows or you know, replace the building. It is recognized indirectly. There's uh, credit in both major systems for retaining the shell or other components of the building, which is only possible if there were durable, still viable systems to retain. And then in, um, particularly in the residential standards, there are often the points for durability mostly recognize the uh, avoided uh, waste generated by mm -hmm. uh, using durable systems such as installing a 50-year roof instead of uh, uh, a shorter warranty product. 
but you're right that there's a lot of room to expand that. And, and it's a subject of major it. discussion, I think, at the next Green Building, USGBC's annual convention. What is it called? Green Build. Green Build, yeah. I think durability is going to be one of the main topics of focus at Green Build, or so I've been led to believe. Um, and that is clearly a green building issue. And by the way, in, in Japan, I used to live in Japan, buildings are built and they are intended to be re rebuilt. You know, 15 or 20 or 25 years is a, is a building that time has come. And that is hardly a green building, really. There's also a discussion about green building uh, durability in terms of the materials that make it up. Uh, in fact, I'm having a meeting next week with some folks from the Department of the Environment about deconstruction of buildings so that you don't just demolish them Right now, there's a, there is a requirement in the California, in the San Francisco Building Code that requires that you take your demolition and uh, construction debris to a registered facility, and that they are required to do a recovery of some percentage. What's the percentage of recovery? Do you remember? They're committed to 65%, and you also need a, a registered hauler for any uh, type of load that's greater than that could, that could be carried by a single actual pickup. Right. So they're committed to a certain recovery rate, which is now going up. You'll see it for new buildings. Um, we already have resource recovery, but we're talking about um, deconstruction, where you actually take the stuff apart in a way that it can be reused. And that, of course, raises the costs and the difficulty and the time, but it's, it's, you know, it's a, another of these coming green building strategies that I think we're going to see more happening in the future. So what I guess I've seen generally in, in all these codes is that first there's a regulation and then the regulations tighten up over the years you know it's, they don't just get in place and that's the end of them especially the green green building stuff San Francisco's green building ordinance and um, Barry and I both worked on the development of the ordinance and then wrote the implementation regulations with a small group of people and the, the green building ordinance primarily relates to new buildings and so I'm going to go through the ordinance quickly okay and Barry can help fill in the details because he is truly an expert in this area. Um, let us turn to attachment A, table one, which is a table inside this ordinance. Okay, so the green building ordinance focuses on two major topics. Commercial buildings and residential buildings over here. So what are the requirements now? What are the requirements for commercial buildings? Well, we break commercial buildings down into two major classes. We break uh, commercial buildings down into mid-size commercial, and mid-size is 5,000 to 25,000 square feet. And we have another category here, which is large commercial, which is over 25,000 square feet. Okay, what about the smaller buildings, less than 5,000 square feet? Are they covered by the ordinance? No, they are not. They are apt to be um, covered in the future in some ways, but they are not. Um, the mid-sized commercial buildings, 5 to 25,000 square feet, is for new mid-sized buildings. And this is for new large commercial, and over 25,000 square feet is all high-rises, it's many of our, it's actually not that big a building in San Francisco for a commercial building, frankly. Um, 
This applies to certain types of classifications of buildings. So, commercial buildings of the following occupancies, B, M, B and M are the two main classifications here. What is a B occupancy this applies to? A B is a business, so any kind of business occupancy, and M is mercantile. So places where they, you do business or you sell things are covered. There are a lot of occupancy classifications that aren't covered. Uh, I, institutional, hospitals, and, and schools are not covered. Uh, certain types of assembly occupancies are not yet covered. Warehouses. I think they might be covered. Um, and part of the reason that these other elements are not covered is that this is a nascent program, this whole development of green building standards, and the hospital standards are being developed, and the laboratory standards for biotech, L, which are not covered, those standards are just now being developed. So the policymakers and this group we worked on said, gee, we don't want to adopt a requirement if the standards haven't yet been developed. But we have clear standards for B and M occupancies already in place, and, um, and I'll tell you what you have to do then. For a new mid-rise commercial building, if you look at our table, you will see across the top of the table we have an effective date, which was November 3rd, 2008, which is when all of these things went into effect, November 3rd, 08. Um, and they tightened up in January 1st of 2009. Uh, requirements increased, and they continued to increase until 2012 when we hit the maximum requirements for these under this ordinance. And we may well see it extend out and ordinance tightened up beyond that. Um, the ordinance doesn't end on 2012, by the way. That's just when the requirements hit their most stringent level. Let's look at the mid-sized commercial building column here. And what you can see is a rating requirement. You have to submit a LEED checklist, but you do not have to be LEED certified at any point. So tell us, Barry, tell us what LEED is. Maybe this is a good place to sure. get into that. Uh, LEED is uh, <clears throat> an acronym. It stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. It's a, actually a set of standards uh, put together by the U.S. Green Building Council, which is a consensus-based membership organization of which the city is one of many members here in San Francisco. And uh, they maintain a set of standards uh, under LEED that recognize other existing standards that are, are common for different areas of environmental performance. And so together, if you can document that a project has met a given number of, of, of um, performance criteria, then it can be recognized that you've gone above and beyond the code and you've built a, a green building. And, and so you get a, a third party verification and a, a credible uh, verification that you have done something uh, above and beyond the, the average uh, national standards. Okay, so LEED has a certified standard, a silver standard, a gold standard, a platinum standard, and people say, oh, I'm building a LEED gold building. And in fact, many of San Francisco's new buildings are LEED gold buildings. That means that they have met a standard developed by this other group called the U.S. Green Building Council, meeting their LEED standard. U.S. Green Building Council is the world's fastest-growing nonprofit uh, organization right now. It is a proprietary system. That is, they own it, they sell it. Here's our product, LEED. You buy our product, we certify your building, and we give you a plaque to put up in your building if you need it. We in the city cannot say somebody has to purchase 
somebody's product. We can't say you can only buy a Chevrolet or you can only buy wood from Weyerhaeuser. We say in our ordinance, you need to meet a lead standard or you need to include a checklist and it has to be either a lead checklist or it has to be one that's similar. Just we are not allowed to say you have to buy this product. So throughout this talk, when I say lead, what I really mean is lead or some other equivalent standard. Would you but lead is a very meaningful standard, and so equivalent is a is, remains a high bar. Uh, Lawrence, wasn't there or isn't there also something in the planning code that was pushing the uh, lead golds? They were getting uh, quicker service. Are there other incentives for getting a lead gold, uh, for getting quicker service for doing green building? And the answer is yes. So. If you are to meet a, if you were to submit a project that was going to achieve a LEED Gold rating prior to 2012, which is when it's required, if you were to submit it today, you would be prioritized to the top of the pile in the building department and in the planning department and in the Department of Public Works. Planning actually has raised the bar. It's really fascinating because what we had during a big, the big boom a year or two ago with lots of high-rise buildings coming in is every single one seem to want to be prioritized as a lead gold building. So they were all lead gold. So you can't prioritize everyone. Pretty soon we had a, a list of people waiting in the priority list. And so uh, what planning has done is actually raise the bar so it was lead gold plus something. Do you remember, Barry? 15% of the total available points. So lead gold plus another 15% of the total available points. So another... I don't know, 10 points or something like that. See, it usually breaks out at uh, 6 or 7, depending six, on the system. Okay. So, yes, but if you bring in a lead gold project today in the building department, we will say you're front of the line. We'll take you next. So high-rise buildings, you can see how we're increasing it. Um, and the same other factors, water-efficient landscaping, water use reduction, stormwater management, meeting those guidelines, construction debris management, and the energy and energy commissioning coming along. Now, I want to skip the existing building stuff for a second and talk about residential buildings. And I just want to make sure we're all clear. Commercial buildings covers occupancy class B and M from 5,000 square feet up. It doesn't cover other occupancy classifications, and it doesn't cover smaller buildings yet. But we can expect that's going to happen. Okay, let's look at residential buildings here. So what residential buildings are covered by this ordinance? Here, here's what's covered. All residential new buildings. It's real easy. They're all covered. There's no exception in this ordinance. And we break it down into three standards. The first are small residential, new residential buildings. And by small, we say four or fewer units. And then the second step is mid-size. And a mid-size building is a building that has five or more units and is not a high-rise. A high-rise is a building which is 75 feet or more from the lowest point of fire department access to the floor, the highest occupied floor of the building. So a high-rise building has a different set of standards here for residential. Now, when you, by the way, when you have mixed occupancy buildings, that is when you have both residential and commercial or you have B and M, and you mix them, you get to choose which of these standards you want to use. 
we're not saying find the most restrictive. We're saying you get to choose. The designer can because it's very difficult to combine them. Say we're going to meet a green point rated standard here and a lead gold standard here and a different one here. You get to choose your standard. Okay, so for a small residential building, there is a requirement, and if we look at our little sheet here, we can see in 2009, you must submit a green point new home construction checklist, and there is a minimum of 25 green points required. Barry, can you tell us what green points means? Sure. Uh, so green points are points that you get for including prescriptive measures under the green point rated uh, rating system. And for a, a project to be recognized as a green home, it needs to meet at least the minimum standard of that system, so that's 50 points, including a, a few prerequisites, the most substantial of which is energy performance at least 15% better than Title 24. And so when the current 2009 standard asks for 25 green points, that's in essence, it's an educational measure that one would need to include the checklist on their drawings and, all, and, and that we'll go into a little bit later, and then um, choose a few measures from that checklist, which would be very easy to find, particularly because there's some recognition of the benefits of infill development in terms of uh, transit and, and, and other benefits. <clears throat> so just, you need know, 25 points, and there isn't a, a current for this year, a verification mechanism, because it is below the standard of green point rated, and then it would uh, increase over time as... as so Greenpoint Rated is a system that was developed by, what's the name of the organization? In East Build Bay? It Green. Build It Green. It was developed in Alameda, is that right, so I hear? The StopWaste.org uh, is the Alameda County Waste Management Authority, and they've been the primary uh, funding source and collaborator with uh, the nonprofit Build It Green maintaining the standard for several years. But they're, like the USGBC, Build It Green is a nonprofit that's a consensus-based membership organization. So again, the city's a member, member and an active participant in that organization and helps with the maintenance of the standards over time. Okay, so we have two standards we've talked about now. One is the LEED standard promulgated by the U.S. Green Building Council, and the other is the Greenpoint Rated Standard by Build It Green. The Greenpoint Rated Standard really is focused more on residential buildings, and the LEED standard originally started to be focused primarily on commercial buildings, but they're expanding and they include, their products include lead for homes and lead for neighborhood development and lead for all sorts of things. So they're, they're expanding broadly, but still Greenpoint rated is closest to what we, we would think of as a prescriptive kind of checklist of things that a builder or a developer might reasonably be able to incorporate into a small residential development without getting into the whole complex of analyzing the, the overall, all of the issues. We're trying to make it simple for the small home builder. Uh, I have a question on, in 2009, uh, I got a project, a new single family residence. You're only requiring 25 points. The Build It Green uh, forms note uh, 50 points, and they're kind of a lot of different requirements is uh, per, you know, like it's uh, energy 30, uh, uh, health five, uh, resource six, uh, water nine. Is that being applied per the, you know, like 50% of that? How is that being done this year? Okay. This year, it is not being allocated. You simply need to have, show that you've got 25 points. And it's really an educational year is what, how we 
put it in here so that people will have to go through the checklist and see what it is just as you're doing, begin to understand it, and then starting next year, in 2010, you actually have to be Greenpoint rated. You have to meet their standards, and there is the minimum 50 point uh, to meet their standards. Okay. Barry, you the other, yeah, so the other part, in, in other words, effect. any 25 points will do this year, and next year those uh, requirements to distribute among the categories do apply. I have heard that Greenpoint and LEED is um, combining the standard or there's an equivalent and Greenpoint rated in the LEED um, certification? Uh, so that's a great question. So the question was, um, there's some, what's the relationship, another way maybe to rephrase it would be, what's the relationship between LEED for homes, so when LEED's replied residentially, versus Greenpoint rated, and can you uh, interchange between the two standards? And so, um, again, just talking about residential construction, um, there is a lead for homes, and there is a, the Greenpoint rated standard, which is the primary one recognized by the city for residential construction. And they do have a memorandum of understanding between the two organizations. Lead is the leadership standard, so it is in lead for homes is a much harder level to um, achieve. Uh, lead for home certification is generally much harder to achieve, and Greenpoint rated is designed to be credible but more builder friendly. And so if you were just Greenpoint rated, you would not meet the minimum bar for lead homes. However, if you were lead for home certified, you could be simultaneously Greenpoint rated. So does that answer your question? Um, in most cases, it, for the sake of simplicity, you know, that, that's, that's all completely optional to go above and beyond and achieve multiple certifications. All we're looking for is some credible standard that the, the home has been built to um, <clears throat> some credible verification that the home has been built to one of these two standards. But you could optionally choose to get certified in, in both of them or entirely other standards as well. So there's not a direct correlation, but they, if you hit lead, you've certainly hit Greenpoint rated. And, and the reason we went to Greenpoint rated is it is very builder friendly. It is a checklist, essentially. It, this lead, the lead, meeting the lead standard requires that your design team sit together and come up with a, an overall global strategy and it be very uh, integrated into the project as a whole. It can um, be very complex, especially for a, a single family home development. It, right. You know, it's, it's certainly very doable. It is being done, uh, but it's something that's appropriate for a, a project that's got some sophisticated uh, resources, sophistication resources applied to it that are a little bit above and beyond what should be the baseline, at least, for, for new right. construction. Then my uh, second question is, is LEED a nationally certified, or is it more of a global? Is it recognized? I mean, is 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 LEED also recognized in Europe, and do they have different standards? Or uh, the answer is kind of yes to all of the above. So so, LEED is maintained by the U.S. Green Building Council, and they encourage uh, interested parties in other nations to develop their own. Uh, organizations and there's a World Green Building Council and they can also have their own standards. However, LEED is, um, <clears throat> LEED is still, the, the, mo the U.S. standard is the most widely recognized and so if a home in San Francisco, or since we're only really talking about homes in San Francisco, I'm, I'm not quite sure how the question would end up applying in practice, but, but um, it is 
meaningful globally, but it is a U.S. standard, might be the shorter answer. Okay. So what do we have to do with for these new small residential buildings with four, four, four units or, or fewer? In 2009, submit a checklist, the Greenpoint checklist, which checks off that you're getting 25 points. It would be hard not to get 25 points building a building under today's California Energy Code and California Building Code. You get more than 50, 25 points just for doing it, basically. Um, in 2010, you need to actually be Greenpoint rated. And in 2012, you need to be Greenpoint rated and make sure you get a minimum of 75 points. Um, and then also meet PUC's stormwater management guidelines, which are, as I said, going to be coming out shortly and require some serious consideration early on in the process. These are not things you can, like, tack on at the end, saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to disconnect my rainwater leader and run it out to the backyard. That is not going to meet PUC's stormwater guidelines. They really need you to integrate that into your overall building design. Um, Mid-sized residential buildings, the standards are uh, virtually the same as a small residential, except that the requirement for 75 green points goes up at 2011 instead of 2012, basically. And then for the high-rise building requirement, you know, we've been talking about the difference between LEED and Greenpoint rated. Most high-rise residential buildings fit more reasonably within the LEED standard for these larger complex buildings, I think. And so you get to choose, do you want to use Greenpoint rated or do you want to use LEED for your high-rise building? And the standard is um, in 2010, and right now, it's LEED certified or Greenpoint rated with a minimum of 50 points plus a bunch of special requirements. And in 2010, it's LEED silver or Greenpoint rated with 75 points. And the special requirements, landscape, water use reduction, stormwater management, and construction debris management. So <clears throat> we tried to keep it as simple as we could, these three sim separate simple categories for residential. The checklist variety for small residential builders, I think. We have not seen too many problems yet. We haven't had a whole lot of buildings coming in in the last few months, as you probably would imagine. But those that have come in have provided the paperwork. And we're going to talk about the paperwork in a second after we talk about one more category. So we have new commercial. I should make this very clear. New commercial. We have new residential. Now we have one more category, and that's on the bottom of our table. It says new large commercial interior or major alteration to existing buildings with B, M, and R occupancies where there are more than 25,000 square feet. That's a lot of ifs and ands and, you know, inclusions here. But basically what we're saying, there are two, two things. Either the first time tenant improvement in a building or some other kind of uh, alteration to an existing building. First-time tenant improvements have to meet rating requirements, which you see here as achieve LEED certified in 2008, achieve LEED silver in 2009, and achieve LEED gold in 2012. Now, when you, have to, when you look to achieve a LEED rating for a commercial tenant improvement, say, in <clears throat> you don't go back and try and certify the whole building as a LEED silver, LEED certified building. There is a special LEED program called LEED for Commercial Interiors. Yes. 
which focuses on the space that you're in. Can you talk a little bit about that, Barry? Sure. No, it's, uh, it directly applies to the options that would be most commonly available in a tenant improvement uh, build-out. Um, and so the energy portion tends to be a little bit more limited than in the other LEED standards. Uh, so it, it, there's a little bit more emphasis on the selection of materials and you know, uh, other major considerations for a TI. Okay. So you don't have to go back to the building envelope and rebuild the building or change the building overall you know, systems. And, and you do get credit. The, the tenant improvement does get some credit for being housed within a core and shell that is LEED certified. So that bar will actually decrease because the, the shell building is already uh, <clears throat> would already be affected in the future under the new large commercial standard. And you just need a few extra points for your, your tenant improvements. And that would be something that the uh, building owner would be likely to want anyway to, to maintain that consistency of um, application of standards within the building. Okay, and then the other piece of this existing building is if you are doing significant upgrades to mechanical, electrical, and or plumbing systems in these buildings, in an existing B, R, or M occupancy building, and it's over 25,000 square feet, then you have to meet some of these green building upgrade requirements, but only if it is over 25,000 square feet, and you're doing significant mechanical, electrical, and plumbing upgrades. And that references... And, and structural. And structural. And it must include structural, and that references the standard of um, uh, seismic upgrade standard. So if you think about it, Chapter 34 says when you're doing a certain amount of alteration work, you trigger seismic upgrade. You trigger 104F, you trigger 3403, whatever it is, because your scope of work triggers it. If that seismic upgrade standard is triggered, which is a very high level and is barely ever met on a commercial tenant improvement, and in addition to that, you're doing mechanical, electrical, and or plumbing, and it's over 25,000 square feet, then you need to do the LEED uh, certification or equivalent to this standard. Okay, so three things. Structural upgrade, mechanical, electrical, and or plumbing, and over 25,000 square feet. Okay, and so that... The, uh, I'll tell you where this really plays in that might be an issue for folks, and that's it applies to B and M, business and mercantile, but it also applies to residential. So if someone, let's say a nonprofit corporation buys a big old building and the tenderloin to renovate it and turn it into some kind of housing, they might trigger the standard. It's over 25,000 square feet. They usually do some kind of structural upgrade, and they're upgrading their mechanical, electrical, and their plumbing systems. That could be a big burden on these kinds of groups. Um, it does get triggered. It's come up a couple of times. Fortunately, the California Historical Building Code, which I mentioned earlier, provides some relief because most of these older buildings like that are qualified to use the California Historical Building Code, and you get relief from certain of the energy requirements in the California Historical Building Code. Um, so there is a solution so it doesn't become overly burdensome. Okay. A lot of stuff here. Now, let us quickly look at what this looks like when you submit it. I'm going to skip over some of the stuff, but basically, if you look at attachment B1, there's something called a submittal template, and basically all it says is, here's what it looks like. We want a sheet that looks like this, attached 
to your plan set as a full-size sheet with everything legible to our minimum microfilm sizes, and maybe it takes two sheets and maybe it takes three sheets, um, but that's what we need. And we tried to make it easy so you paste the stuff up, sheet one, sheet two, sheet three, or separate sheets or whatever it is. This particular one is um, if you're doing a lead or a lead equivalent system like you would do for these guys or for a high-rise. We have a similar template sheet for green, uh, green point rated if you're using that. And you can paste up their checklist and show us which of the elements on their checklist you're going to be achieving. And importantly, let me see, I think I have an actual model of one of these checklists here. So here's one of these checklists. And there are a lot of pages, and I know it adds pages to your drawing set, but it allows us to track the stuff. You check what you're providing, and then over on one side of the checklist, you actually tell us um, where on your plan set we can find the element that you're claiming that you're going to be doing, that you will be doing. So if you say we're going to be putting in, um, we're getting, claiming a point because we're using uh, uh, pre-engineered uh, trusses, say, whatever it is, you say, look at sheet S3 or sheet whatever it is. Tell us. Or if it's not submitted yet and it's coming later in an addendum to your plan, say, will be submitted as part of addendum number two. So you're not just saying, check, yeah, we're going to take care of that, we'll do that. We want to know where it is that you're actually going to be doing that. And that allows us to track this stuff. Now, speaking of tracking, um, people often say, well, how do you enforce it? Are you checking all this stuff? The amount of stuff that is required to meet a LEED certification is enormous, an enormous volume. It's a big stack of documents and materials. Basically, LEED does the checking. You, you let them know what you're intending to do. They give you some pre-approvals in certain ways, and then you finish the job and you, you show, you prove in some level to them that you've met it, and they provide you a certification. If you go through that process, we are satisfied that you have met it. We are not going to be checking all your submittals. We're not checking on the field to make sure you've got the right, you know, kind of paint on the walls or anything. You have to do that to satisfy LEED. I think Greenpoint Rated also has a similar program where they actually have field inspection as both, well. Both LEED for Homes and uh, Greenpoint Rated have field inspection. And so we will accept that. We are not going to be inspecting it. We're not going to be plan checking it. We're relying on outside agencies. The problem might come in those buildings where someone says, I'm not going to meet LEED. I'm not going to get a LEED plaque, but I'm going to meet an equivalent standard. Um, or they, yeah, and then we say, well, how do we know? You're, you know, these are, these are the agencies that are checking it. That means nobody's checking it. So what we have done is written into our rules that we may be doing some kind of audits on those buildings which are not either LEED certified or Greenpoint rated. And um, we haven't gone that far along down the line to tell you how many and who's doing them and so on. But, you know, but if you are, I can say if you are certified, we consider that acceptable. Now, there is a bit of a problem um, when somebody builds a brand new building and they want to close out the job. And it takes another three or four months to get your LEED certification. They say, we want our final certificate of occupancy. And we say, well, we haven't gotten your LEED certification yet. We can't. How do we know you've met it? So we have a procedure, and it's detailed in this bullet, and if you want, you can go through it a little later, that allows the design professional of record to sign something that says, in my professional opinion, I can 
state that we have substantially complied with these requirements. And we will accept that. And then if you later get your LEED certificate, send it to us and we'll replace that letter with the certificate and you're off the hook for any kind of compliance uh, verification audit. This is just an, maybe a, an important note is that the design professional record would need to have both their professional license and uh, appropriate credentials to confirm that they were familiar with the standard that they're, they're pointing out that the project is in compliance with. And so as an alternate, they don't always have to be the same person. You can also have the design professional and either a lead accredited professional or Greenpoint Raider sign off that, that, that it's met that standard. Okay, my question is the stamp. What kind of uh, design professional we were looking for? Either an architect or engineer. Arch arch engineer. What about if you, if those people don't have an architectural uh, license, but they have the lead certification, are we accepting those? They can sign for the as a lead accredited professional, but ultimately, what the department is asking for is for there to be some. Uh, person w whose professional license is engaged in the process. So typically someone in their firm or someone associated with the project does have a professional stamp or they wouldn't get their approvals anyway. And so they would both need to sign off in that, I that see. instance. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, did I hear correctly that for 2009 you're not going to be doing verifications or requiring verifications? For residential building. For residential. That's correct. For 2009, there is no requirement that a small residential project um, actually be Greenpoint rated. All you have to do is meet 25 points. Therefore, you don't have to show that you have met the rating requirement. You don't have to engage the Greenpoint rater to, to verify that. All you have to do is show us which of those 25 points you're meeting. Yeah. It's still an educational year here. <laughs> and what what is the time that cements the requirements for the project? Any project that's submitted for a site uh, permit this in 2009, okay. that's the set of requirements that apply to it for the entirety okay. of the year. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so these these time frames begin on January 1st of each year, um, and the it's based on the date of the submittal of your permit application. This is in accordance with California Health and Safety Code regarding building permits. And it is the date of application that the building permit requirements become effective. So if you are to submit now, um, you have to meet the 2009 requirements. If you were to submit it now and on a site permit, that is sort of an umbrella permit where you submit the details in 2010, so you say, don't worry, I'm going to detail all this stuff under in my addendum in 2010. You don't meet the 2010 requirements. You meet the date of 2009 when your permit application was first made. Um, so if somebody were to have submitted something last year before November 3rd, even though their addenda are coming later, this is they would have been in before the date. In other words, it's the date of your permit application. And for site permits, those of you who do a lot of work around here, you know, we have something called a site permit process where basically you submit an umbrella permit saying here's the concept, here's the envelope of the building and the size and the shape, and you do that for the purpose of going through the planning review and approval process, which sometimes takes a long time and you don't want to do all the detailed engineering and architectural drawings because planning might take a story off or who knows what. And then you later submit an addendum. The addenda are not permits. 
for the purpose of determining what code is in effect. The only permit is the site permit, that first umbrella permit. The addenda are part of the site permit that was submitted previously. So the trigger is the date of the site permit application. So if you are submitting a site permit, then at what point do you submit the, uh, the guideline checklist? Would that be during the site permit? Yes. Okay. Yes, you submit the checklist with your site permit application. And as I said, if you, some of the stuff is not going to be submitted until you submit your addenda, you just say this will be part of addendum number three or addendum number four or whatever, just so we know it's where it's going to be coming in the process. And but this should be part of your application. Or okay. even some items may not be some relevant to what you, the building department would be interested in at all. And so it, you, you could either refer to your specs or that it's not applicable. Right. Like, are you located near a major transit hub? You know, you can make a note here. You know, or maybe it shows on the site on the site plan or something. But yeah, you know. And then of course during the whole addendum process, if things change, then you would just resubmit the checklist. I'm not doing engineered right. joists. I'm doing steel joists now. Or right. That's right. Something. And so I mean, it's just like every other thing that you do. That's right. You just it's just a a process. That's right. Exactly. Sometimes we finish the the cell building, the cell of the building, earlier. And then the interior comes maybe one or two years later. How is the interior going to be uh, uh, rating? How, in accordance to the sale of the building or the interior uh, uh, schedule? Okay. So there's a, a, lead, a lead product for that. So it's up to the, the project applicant to choose which rating system makes sense for them. And I would think that they would generally choose to use lead for core and shell in that instance. And then those new uh, tenant, first-time tenant build-outs, they come in on, on the appropriate line item oh, no, there. No. Okay. And so they'd be separately uh, certified as commercial interiors. That'd be the most common solution. And then we could probably come up with a odd example where they'd choose to do something a little different. But usually that's, that's the course we're going to take. In preparing for this, I, I wrote this little memo. And I was thinking about what are some of the significant challenges that we're facing. Um, and on the back side of the, this page, it talks about some of them. One is the lack of focused financing sources. We have seen, I see many people say, gee, I would love to do solar photovoltaic. I would love to do this or that if, they, if I could figure out how to finance this reasonably. It's being addressed now. We're doing photovoltaic financing, part of the whole you know, stimulus package is financing. But to simplify it so that homeowners can get financing easily is a big challenge. And, and I think we're going to we'll see solutions to that in the near term. But it is a, it is a current problem. There's been a, a lot of innovation on that in the last year. Um, I, I think that the main, as of the day of filming, the main issue is the credit in general being uh, diff difficult to come by. But um, provided that one is uh, well qualified, there are companies that are now providing solar as a service with little or no upfront investment and taking on the uh, risk and responsibility of maintaining the system over time and even acting as kind of a, a miniature utilities where you agree to pay a, a monthly fee for a, a fixed amount of electricity that your system would generate in, in lieu of paying that, that funds to PG&E and it's depending on um, how appropriate and how easy it is to install solar on your home or business uh, that 
monthly fee or the cost of energy can be lower than buying from the utility, and it, it can be a little higher, but it's at least predictable over the long term. Yeah. So, but I was very encouraged uh, last week to talk to the president of one of the, one of the credit unions here in San Francisco about the concept of having unsecured loans to homeowners of up to some smallish amount, $20,000 maybe, for green building upgrades to make it really easy for people to get money to do green building upgrades at a reasonable or lowered, lowered rent as an incentive to do green building stuff. I think we're seeing that these kinds of products are going to be coming forward in, in a year or two. So you can go to the credit union and say, I want to do insulation and, you know, stuff, and they'll say, fine, we, we have a special program for you. And, and that's a, a public service sort of program. And one of the challenges that the bank, uh, the financial industry has had has been, you know, what, what does it mean? You know, it, it's very clear what a uh, single system is, like a photovoltaic system has a particular set of parameters and a particular output, but a set of green building upgrades is uh, really boils down to a set of solutions that are appropriate to the given right. building. Right. And so that's being addressed by the development of some national underwriting standards for green building. And, and so it should be a lot easier for banks to provide that service and to recognize the, um, the, the value of their, their, um, <coughs> uh, their borrowers reducing their energy and other uh, liabilities. And that, so they're actually a, a better credit risk than some mm -hmm. other types of investments that they could make. So there is a, a great deal of activity in right. that, that area. So we're going to see this, which has in the last year been sort of a stumbling block resolved in the next few years. Um, by the way, this, this bank person I was talking to said, can you give me a list of what is a green building upgrade, please? So that, that's <laughs> sort of like what you're saying, we, just so we know what we're talking about. So we, we're going to need to be engaged as well as at the national level, at the local level, with lending institutions. Um, I talk about having no clear integrated green building analysis tools. There are a lot of people now, this is a profit center. I see people saying, I'm going to, I do an energy analysis. There are energy analysis companies. There are building analysis, uh, water. There are people who do water analysis. There are people who look at everything except the integrated green building life because this expanded to consumables, you know, what's in your refrigerator, where do you buy your stuff, where do you, you know, how do you get rid of your trash, how long does your daughter take a shower for, you know, all the, you know, how do you get to work. These, you know, if we focus on how much energy you use, we're losing the value of, you know, overall building, overall life evaluation. And so I see one of the shortcomings, one of the challenges that we're trying to deal with is integrating green building, energy saving into the whole life uh, evaluation. There, there are tools for individuals to directly evaluate their, their environmental impact from the, particularly from the point of view of uh, climate change. There's a, a plethora of those sorts of tools. And there are a, a, a growing number of proprietary tools for integrated analysis of the performance of a building across different resource categories and life right. cycle analysis of a building that are getting more and more comprehensive and move uh, definitely go beyond just energy, but they don't get into uh, necessarily a number of issues related to operation of the building over time, and that's, that is a, seems like a, a challenge at, at, a, at a minimum. Um, and it's an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, employees not provided with critical green building knowledge and skills. I, 
I, not, I don't want to be critical in any way, but you know, here I work in the Department of Building Inspection. We have a lot of long-term civil service employees who are hired to do a job. They're plan checkers or engineers or architects or building inspectors or whatever, and they come with a skill set, and they're good at what they do, but their skill set has not yet been upgraded to include a lot of the green building uh, understanding. And so it's a challenge both for the city but for private industry to upgrade employee skills to be knowledgeable about what this is all about and where it's leading. Because other than you know, the economic crisis that we're facing at the moment, the green building thing is the biggest uh, feature of the building world that I have seen in the last couple of years. This is, this is, the, this is the, the big wave here. This is what's happening. You know, and I've been doing this for a long time. This is a big, big sea change. Um, you know, there's a, a, a great deal going on in that area at the same time you know, that, that um, you see while there's been uh, successful programs looking at integrating uh, analysis across uh, different areas of resource usage and how to operate these rating systems, um, there's been less training specific to a given trade. And so, but you do see more uh, emphasis on those, uh, both the unions have their ex typically extensive training courses, and then there's also uh, shorter uh, offerings through uh, the PG&E and the Pacific Energy Center, there's the Building Operator Certification Program, and then there's even uh, green plumbers out there talking to the plumbers and you know attracting interest in a trade that had sure. maybe not been as engaged for quite as long as some others. and. Um, and then you see, you know, as interest in photovoltaics in particular has increases, continues to increase basically geometrically, that the pool of skilled workers who have the, the uh, technical knowledge to design and install those systems is, is definitely a major challenge to maintain that sort of growth. So the op educational opportunities are there. We just need to move our employees. You need to move your, you need to take personal ownership of these for your own training and for your employees' training. Uh, but there are plenty and pl plenty of opportunities. Everybody's headed that way. I see the plumbing truck driving down the street. It says, you know, whatever it is, green plumbing. You know, you just see it. It's all, it's everywhere. Green builder. It's on every truck. Um, you know, th just to name a few uh, resources in town that, for, that are, are particularly low cost, uh, there's a monthly uh, green building professionals uh, meeting that uh, is typically we host it at the Department of the Environment, but it's it's uh, convened by uh, Build It Green and it's open to any interested party. How do they get information about that? Uh, you go to uh, builditgreen.org uh, and ask to get on the mailing list. And uh, it, there's actually a, a lot of information on that website. They do have their rating system, but their mission is to be to facilitate overall change in the market to institutionalize and standardize green building is, is standard practice and so there's not only information for how to have a verified green project but also uh, how to get training how to interact with professional peers and and people maybe outside your peer network in other uh, disciplines and you know how to identify green materials and, and there's a database to source those materials so it's a really kind of an information clearinghouse that that's it's very handy now, you mentioned the Pacific Energy Center. You should be aware of that. It's a wonderful resource. It's on How Howard yeah, Street? Yeah, Howard Street, www.pge.com slash energy classes. And they typically host uh, in the neighborhood of uh, 100 to 200 uh, classes per semester. So, so 
basically twice that many per year. And then they also are affiliated with PG&E's other programs that bring uh, classes uh, throughout to to your door throughout California. Right. But the the San Francisco and Stockton training centers are the two biggest. And in San Francisco, they tend to focus on more on uh, commercial construction and commercial building-related issues. Stockton is tends to be more focused on small commercial and residential. And you can get information about either of those through pge.com slash energy classes. And lead usgbc.org, I think yeah. is what it is. And you can find out about lead training, lead educational opportunities. They have them around the Bay Area all the time. Yeah, there's really, there's um, so two. There is a lot. There are many resources, a lot of information. You can always call the Department of the Environment, too, to get <laughs> sure. information. If I put in one more plug there, there's definitely the usgbc.org is the most centralized source of information. It's for the USGBC national organization. And then locally, to connect with uh, green building professionals in our market, there's usgbc ncc.org and that's the Northern California chapter and so they are they they put together the classes that are brought to the Bay Area and they're the most uh, local and specific and you can find networking resources and uh, a lot of great stuff through that website there's a lot more to talk about but it's 1:30, and we always end on time so I want to thank you all for coming and we'll see you next month thank you very much